welcome back to part two of this episode of the House of Lords podcast. This week, we are talking to Baroness Campbell of Surbiton about campaigning for the rights of people with disabilities. And we also hear from Lord Teverson, who is chair of the EU Environment Subcommittee, about what brought him to the House of Lords and some of the issues that his committee have been investigating, such as fisheries. You recently spoke to Lord Teverson. Yes, he's the chair of the EU subcommittee on the environment and, among other things, also a former MEP. I spoke to him about what brought him to the Lords and some of the environmental issues around Brexit. Here's what he had to say. I'm Lord Teverson, Robin Teverson. I am chair of the House of Lords EU Environment Subcommittee, and I've been a member of the House since 2006. Thank you for joining us. One of the things we'd like to explore on the podcast is what brings people to the House of Lords. You've previously been an MEP during the 90s. You were on Cornwall Council, I understand. Obviously, you're now chair of the EU Environment Committee. But how did you come to be in the House of Lords? Well, it was back in 2006 or maybe the end of 2005. And Charles Kennedy was the leader of the Liberal Democrats at the time. I'm a, I'm a Lib Dem in, in the House. And I received this phone call saying, are you interested in becoming a member of the House? I'd shown some interest in it uh, before. And of course, it was the real decision was that of the Prime Minister of the time, Tony Blair. And there were some spaces available at that time, and uh, and we were given the opportunity to take up one or two of those. And I obviously said yes, although at the time I had to say to Charles, because I was about to meet my daughter, who I hadn't seen for a long time, I said, can I phone you back? Uh, which I think quite surprised him. And uh, in the end, when we uh, managed to speak, obviously I was pleased to uh, come in. But I had made it clear I was had an interest in continuing my political involvement uh, in Parliament, having uh, finished being uh, an MEP some years before, and uh, a real opportunity to stay involved in national and international affairs as well, and European ones. Compare being in the Lords to being in the European Parliament? Well, funnily enough, there's there's some similarities in 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 a in a way. I uh, I always think the European Parliament, which I was always very proud to be uh, having been a member of in the in the 90s, and there's a number of uh, former MEPs in the House of Lords. Some of them uh, very much of a Brexit bent, and some of uh, Remainer in the old arguments. Um, but uh, I would say it has a gentler form of politics than the House of Commons, which is true of both the European Parliament and the House of Lords. It probably has a a broader, longer-term perspective as, as as well to a degree. The, the European Parliament is obviously international in certain ways that it looks across all the nation member states of Europe, but uh, but also that that bigger worldwide view. And so, in in a certain way, from a certain perspective, they're they're quite similar. Some mind you, there's some big differences uh, as well. Funnily enough, they had obviously had electronic voting, and now in the House of Lords, we have electronic voting ourselves uh, because of the COVID crisis. But the move between Brussels and Strasbourg was always a real pain to all MEPs. None of us uh, wanted that, but unfortunately, it was part of the international treaties, and France was never going to agree the other way around. The speeches were often that was the big difference. And the House of Lords, uh, outside quest, uh, parliamentary questions, then 
you uh, often can have a speech which is uh, uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes and get away with it in the European Parliament. Sometimes it was down to two minutes. Uh, but so there are those differences. And also, obviously, the surroundings in uh, in the House of Lords, you have a, a chamber that goes back to the uh, mid 19th century, full of those traditions. Whereas in the European Parliament, you had your own desk, you had a microphone, and it was a lot, lot more modern. Something actually, which uh, could be a challenge uh, if we go through the whole refurbishment of uh, of Westminster Palace. Who knows what might happen then? I'm a chair of the Lords EU Environment Subcommittee. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what that involves and how that's changed during the Brexit process? Yes, uh, the I mean one of the things the House of Lords does it has concentrated very much uh, more than maybe the House of Commons in terms of looking at our relationship with what used to be the rest of the European Union, the other twenty-seven member states, and so it built up a has built up a really and well-deserved reputation in understanding. European issues in in depth, and that's what the European Union Committee and its subcommittees have been about. So when Brexit uh, was decided at the referendum in 2016, clearly one of the big things that was needed, not just by the House of Lords, but by, I think, the nation as a whole, let alone the government perhaps, was to understand what the implications of that vote were and what sort of deal we should look for and and what the advantages and disadvantages were. So straight after the referendum, we were plunged into looking at well, what, what are the actual detailed implications of that. And in my own committee environment, then we looked at fisheries, agriculture, uh, environment, climate change, energy, chemicals, all of those uh, broad areas in some detail to see what the implications were. And we did that mainly through getting witnesses. At that time, we could do all that physically. Nowadays, we do uh, we do all these uh, public uh, consultations over Zoom, but, uh, but actually getting them around the table and understanding what the challenges were for those various areas. And I have to say that um, I, I think we did actually get to some of the real deep questions uh, that, and practical questions that that we're still at today as we wait to hear the outcome of, of, of the negotiations at the tail end of the transition period. And I suppose one of the things that struck me was we put a lot of challenges to government because those reports go to the House and then we goes to the, the reports go to the government and then the government replies. And I think at that time, Really, the ministers and government, to a degree, found us a nuisance. They didn't really want to hear about all these problems that there might be. And we also highlighted the opportunities as well. But those uh, those issues were still there, and many of them still are. And so, if you like, we were a bit of a thorn in the side of the government in terms of, of really focusing on the issues that affected real people, business, farmers, fishers, all, all those uh, consumers, everybody outside, the, the sort of things, the challenges that came up. As we come to the transition, it gets a little bit more difficult because now we're quite close to final negotiations as, as, as we talk about this. Then clearly and understandably, ministers don't want to say what the uh, details of the negotiations are. When we ask them questions about that, they come back and say, sorry, you've got to wait and see. And I guess uh, that's fair enough. And so we wait for the outcome. 
we're going to have still be there after uh, transition ends on the 31st of December. And I guess what we'll be doing then is looking at really the outcomes and seeing how those need to be improved or how they can be taken advantage of more. So it's going to be just as challenging then, hopefully not uh, Kent full of uh, uh, lorries trying to get through uh, to the, the to the continent and uh, the sort of agricultural projects that we looked at being tied up. But uh, the other area we did particularly look at was the Northern Ireland uh, Great Britain relationship and how that those flows of products are going to work and some really big questions there. Previously, you chaired the Lords Committee on the Arctic, didn't you? Um, and what, what's inspired your political interest in the environment? Well, the Arctic, yes, the Arctic Committee was one of the ones that the House of Lords sets up just for one session for it for a year. And you look at a particular subject that isn't necessarily follow, covered by other committees in, in their whole. And yeah, the Arctic was, was, was really interesting. Now, it was a great privilege to be chair of that. And the, uh, in terms of climate change, the Arctic is where it's happening. The, Temperatures there have been over 10 degrees higher than uh, than expected or, or was historically there. And now there's predictions that uh, the ice cover in summer is going to disappear by the end of this uh, decade. So real, real issues there, really interesting and, and, and something that we can go back and challenge uh, the government and the broader international uh, community on what they were doing around some of those uh, issues from defence through to climate change. But my interest in environment is, I suppose, like most people is that they're into this area. It's you look at the world, you look at the long term as the House of Lords is so much better at doing in many ways. And uh, what, what are the things that really, really challenge us beyond the pandemic we have at the moment? And one of those is uh, climate change. The other is the whole biodiversity uh, issue around our loss of nature, our loss of species. And both of those are different while very interconnected. And those challenges are something that as a, as a member of the House, and uh, certainly the, when you have a privilege of being a chair of a committee, you can really start to get to and again as all these um, committees and everything a lot of other things that uh, parliament does it's around nudging cajoling persuading government to really concentrate on these areas and not forget them in comparison with some of the short-term issues which obviously have to be dealt with uh, as 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 well so you keep on reminding them of those long-term issues and i well i i've uh, just become a grandfather as well last year. And so uh, you uh, you not think just not about your children, you think about your grandchildren. And uh, uh, she was, uh, Cassie was born in uh, last year, 2019. So you think, well, by the time she's 50, it's 2069. We're well beyond the zero carbon targets of 2050. And if we don't, if the world doesn't manage to do that, it's going to be really, really difficult for those future generations. And it's us that have to make that difference now. So it needs people to uh, concentrate on some of those really core cool long term uh, issues and get them sorted now. You mentioned earlier in relation to the EU Environment Committee, the possible Brexit deal. Um, I think certainly from the coverage I've seen about the negotiations and, for example, the whole chlorinated chicken situation, it's raised awareness that a lot of our environmental and agricultural protections are actually EU-based. How, how do you see those protections developing outside the EU? Yeah, really interesting because 
It's isn't it funny how you can talk? We were saying just about climate change, and uh, sometimes you, it sounds very unemotional as a as a as a phrase, and, and maybe that's partly because not everybody's really got involved in that issue uh, until quite recently. Whereas mention chlorinated chicken, and everybody immediately thinks, "Hey, that's uh, I don't fancy that. Is that going to be on my supermarket shelf? Is that actually going to affect what I?" feed my family how i put uh, food on the on the table in in future and that issue although a lot of people would maybe deny that it's a problem i think it is a problem then that really has concentrated uh, minds and yeah there is a, a real challenge there i think one of the things that we when we took evidence sessions between brexit and the transition uh, period or when the referendum was in the transition period was when we went back to government on farming and environmental issues, then we always got a huge reassurance from DEFRA, the department of, that deals with agriculture and uh, fisheries, that, that chlorinated chicken wasn't going to be a problem. We weren't going as a country to lower uh, food standards under any circumstances. We then talked to the Department of International Trade and you get a different uh, angle altogether. They don't contradict what DEFRA is saying or the, or the Secretary of State for, for, for food, but, uh, but they have a, an angle on it that says, yeah, we're, we're absolutely going to go out there. We're a free trading nation. We're actually going to get free trade agreements and we're going to open up the UK economy to the world. And when you ask about uh, food, then they're much less specific. And there is a real challenge there. And if one is thing is, is, is for sure that in terms of an American trade deal, an Australian or a New Zealand or South American trade deals, they have a lot of access already in terms of goods uh, without huge tariffs. Um, a lot of those tariffs have disappeared under World Trade Organization rules. So what are they what, what is not covered by that? One is services. Well, okay. Financial services is we export it. We we don't so much import that. What's left? It's agriculture. Agriculture is always the difficult area of trade negotiations. And if there's one thing that the United States and those countries will want, the one area they haven't got access to for the moment is agriculture. So it's very difficult to see how we can have any sort of trade deal with a lot of those countries without opening out our agricultural markets. And then they're unlikely uh, just to have a trade deal with the United Kingdom to change the whole way that their agriculture works. So is this all a challenge? Yes, it is. And I think it could be a major, major barrier uh, to actually getting those uh, getting those trade deals. The whole farming industry is going through a going to go through a huge change uh, because of the way that financing um, EU subsidies are disappearing. Very different regime in terms of being environmentally orientated, which I welcome hugely in terms of uh, the way that money is allocated in future. But it's uh, there's going to be a real challenge internationally. I think it'd be quite difficult for those trade deals to take place. And it's not just environmental standards. Obviously, it's also animal welfare and all those other things, just economies of scale. Um, it's so much cheaper to raise cattle, sheep, um, and a lot of other products, agricultural products, in those vast areas that there are in other parts of the world. So, yes, outside EU protectionism, and it is protectionism, then there's a real challenge there to those industries and to consumers. 
And do, do you anticipate any change in US policy with the election of a new president, um, particularly for environmental and trade issues? Yeah, interesting. Well, if they manage to leave uh, Donald Trump out of the White House in uh, January and he walks out and, uh, yes, I mean, obviously uh, uh, Joe Biden's going to uh, take over. And, yeah, I, I really welcome that in terms of the environmental and climate change issues. I mean, already he has said that he will make a commitment to re-entering the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the absolute fundamental building block of global climate change action uh, into the future, however imperfect it was. So America is going to come back uh, to that. And a whole raft of environmental legislation and federal environmental legislation has been weakened over the Trump presidency. And of course, when it comes to climate change, what an individual country does, particularly the second largest emitter, which uh, the United States is, then that has a global effect, not just a, a, a national one. And so I think there's going to be a, a major change there. The difficulty, obviously, is in the in the US is that you have a, a divided uh, Congress. You have House of Representatives, which is still Democrat controlled, and the uh, Senate, which is uh, Republican. And a lot of Republicans are still yet to be convinced or they think their voters are still to be convinced about climate change. So I don't think it's going to be easy. I think and also we must shouldn't forget that so much is also done at state level as well in the United States. So but uh, yeah, a big, big in, in, in improvement, I think. And it, so as we move towards COP26 in Glasgow uh, next year in a year's time, then now we're going to have the United States, China, which has actually come on board and says uh, net zero 2060, but maybe we'd like it earlier than that. But uh, but the first time they've been committed to any such target, uh, together with the European Union uh, as well, the largest uh, economies in the world, perhaps come together with one message. And that's absolutely necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, presidential results when they finally came through. I think that's very, very good for the planet. Turning to fisheries policy, the committee has looked at this area closely in recent years, and the fishery bills obviously just passed through Parliament. Well, why do you think fisheries policy is such a big issue, particularly in the EU-UK Brexit negotiations? That's a good question. Why does 0.01 or 0.02%, however you measure it, of the United Kingdom's GDP actually turn out to be one of the three last stumbling blocks of uh, a trade deal for the whole of the United Kingdom with the whole of the European Union? It's a, it's a good question. And of course, part of the answer of that is fishing is very emotive. It's very visual. I mean, that's the other side. We were talking earlier on about how chlorinated chicken sort of, though that phrase brings to mind, um, focuses very much uh, an issue. And I think on fisheries, it's those that marine idea and, and, and the visuals that you get with, uh, with fisheries that actually make it quite an emotive uh, subject. And I mean, I live in Cornwall and fisheries is a very uh, important industry here as well, particularly important for coast, local coastal communities. And it's a very tough industry and a very dangerous one. And I think people understand that. And that's why it has uh, quite a, an emotive area. And of course, the whole Brexit debate was around, and I don't know, it was one, the, the Brexiteers very much into taking back control. And of course, one of the areas where 
we didn't have control, and it's, uh, it's literally true, is that under the common fisheries policy, then outside territorial waters of 12 miles, then for our economic uh, zones, the EZs, then um, it was common common territory for the uh, for the European Union. I mean, there were a lot of rules around that at the end of the day, but uh, but basically we didn't have control over our own economic zone uh, out to see the 200 mile limit, and that therefore has become, I guess, iconic. One of the red lines in terms of uh, those negotiations to show that we really are a truly independent and sovereign nation. So it's because of that. Uh, as, as as well. Also, I mean, it uh, was a very effective part of national Nigel Farage's uh, campaign uh, prior to the uh, referendum, and actually during it as well. And also, um, I mean, I've dealt with fisheries uh, issues since I was a member of the European Parliament and represented Cornwall and Plymouth. But it's also one where the fishing industry is very very good at getting its voice heard. Uh, they uh, don't mind being. Uh, very, very vocal. They don't mind stating their opinion uh, and being very clear about what they they want and uh, good for them for doing that. But having said that, it's certain parts of the industry and maybe heard, maybe not others. Um, Certainly, for instance, in Scotland, the West Coast industry on that side, which looks much more to shellfish and seafood, is uh, very uh, concerned uh, about its, its future. And of course, this is what we have to remember is that it's very straightforward in terms of the ask to have control over our national waters. But of course, we export 80% of the, for the fish that we catch. I think 60% altogether goes to uh, the European Union, the rest of the EU. And so there is that big tussle, that big confrontation over access for European vessels into British waters in relation to them continuing there to give us access to their markets. And that's still what has to be sorted out. But yeah, if uh, the people from Mars looked down on us and said, hang on a minute, you're not too bothered about getting rules of origin sorted out for the automotive industry. You haven't got anything much agreed in terms of financial services, which is worth £60 billion worth of uh, exports. And yet you're haggling over fisheries. I think they might think, yeah, hang on a minute. That's a little bit strange. Lord Severson, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been uh, a great uh, pleasure. Just go back to one thing that you said to me about the European Parliament and the House of Lords. I remember one of the things when I joined the European Parliament, I was on a flight from Bristol to Strasbourg. And uh, and we had to go via Brussels. And on Brussels to Strasbourg, I was with some very long-serving uh, MEPs. One of them was John Hume, who was the Northern Ireland, uh, unfortunately, recently, uh, the late uh, John Hume, a brilliant uh, politician and one of the people that was uh, uh, there for the, uh, has really meant that the peace process took place. And he gave a bit of wisdom to me as a wet behind the ears uh, parliamentarian about to start my career in the European Parliament. And he said, there's one thing you should do is to concentrate on a particular issue. Um, that's how you get change as a parliamentarian. And that's why I concentrated first on fisheries and then the marine environment through that and then the broader environment. And I have loads of interest in lots of other issues, but I concentrate on those and that's where and how you get change as a parliamentarian. That would be advice you pass on to 
young members of the House today. Absolutely. You know what, uh, something that interests you, something that's important to the nation, or if it's a representative parliamentarian, something that's important to your constituents. And it takes a long, that's why business people find it frustrating often in politics, because you make a decision, it changes. As a parliamentarian, it requires graft, hard work, concentration, focus over a number of years. And it's amazing what you can actually achieve. In our second interview for Disability History Month, we talked to a crossbench member and self-described rebel, Baroness Campbell of Surbiton. Baroness Campbell joined the House of Lords in 2007, and as well as being a lifelong campaigner, she co-founded and directed the National Centre for Independent Living. She served as a commissioner of the Equality and Human Rights Commission and also chaired the Social Care Institute for Excellence. And here's what she had to say about her journey to the House of Lords, what she wants to achieve and what still needs to happen 25 years on from the passing of the Disability Discrimination Act. Well, good morning. My name's Jane Campbell. I'm a crossbench, independent crossbench peer in the House of Lords. But really, I'm a rebel. Your involvement with Westminster started long before becoming a member of the House of Lords. Um, am I right in thinking that you once stopped traffic to lead hundreds of wheelchair users onto Westminster Bridge? Well, yes, the rumours are true. In another life, when I was in my 20s, I guess you could have called me a, a radical disability activist. I'm just graduating, you see, from university after... And after applying for about 50 jobs, I ironically landed one with a disability charity as a researcher. But after a couple of months, they told me I was unemployable because I couldn't physically use a typewriter and was promptly sacked. So I think this provoked a deep feeling of injustice within me, which I wanted to put to good use. Um, and luckily, I came across a new fledgling disability organisation run and controlled by disabled people who wanted to do something radical about our social and economic exclusion. And I was given the job of persuading and organising disabled people to come on demonstrations, which I was particularly good at because I'm a bit of a bossy boat. And it was it was really empowering for disabled people to demonstrate their frustration at being excluded for years from education, jobs, transport systems, and public life in general. And because they and I were so tired of trying to change hearts and minds through education or lobbying politicians, nobody was listening and nothing was changing. So really, there was only one thing left to do, and that was direct action. I remember the first occasion, you're quite right, it was quite thrilling. It was in the late 1980s, and I led about just over 100 disabled people into the middle of Westminster Bridge, where we promptly put our wheelchair brakes on and sat there until the police arrived. And I have to tell you, there was much confusion because nobody had ever witnessed disabled people breaking the law. 
I mean, when you thought to myself, living in care homes or with mum and dad and watching daytime TV. And here we are in the middle of the streets with placards saying, rights not charity. And the police did not know whether to pass us on the head and buy us an ice cream or arrest us. Um, so the confusion was, was, well, it was hilarious. But it was also really empowering for those of us who did it. And I guess from those early acts of defiance, disabled people understood that for once in their life, we had a voice and we needed to use it. Otherwise, nothing was going to change. No medical professional, no charity, no politician. They were all speaking on our behalf. And I guess the power of protest was that we spoke on our own behalf. And actually haven't stopped till, since that day. So could you tell us a bit about then your journey from that moment on Westminster Bridge to, to being introduced as a, a crossbench member of the House of Lords? How did how did that come about? Well, if you think I was only my I was only about twenty-two when I started campaigning. And for many years I was just busy campaigning for changes and working with other disabled people to grow our civil rights movement. You know, it was very similar to the movement on women's equality or race equality, where you had to work out who we were, what needed changing, how we were going to go about it. And this took time, because for generations, we, we've been totally passive. So, yeah, it was, well, I guess, if you think about it, non-disabled people, and spoken on on our behalf forever. Um, we call it the does he take sugar syndrome. You know, never ask a disabled person. Always ask the expert or the mother or the person with them. So once we felt confident about ourselves, we started organising events, writing articles, and I became very interested in lobbying politicians for anti-discrimination legislation. But at the same time, I needed a job. And after being told I was unemployable, instead of thinking and believing that, which most disabled people do, I was even more determined to show that I could be as capable as anyone else. Um, So in the end, I managed to get an administrative job with the GLC, and I was working for Ken Livingstone. And within the GLC, I worked my way up the ladder to become head of diversity training across all London boroughs. And I was training disabled people to become trainers. And that was our big awareness campaign. And from there, I went on to set up a charity to help disabled people to become independent. I wanted to get disabled people out of mum and dad's home or out of institution and living as independent citizens. So this charity did that. And whilst I was there, I was working on the Social Care Direct Payments Act um, and again came into contact with MPs and civil servants in putting together that that bill which enabled disabled people to employ their own support workers. 
which I do today. But at the same time, I was also, can I resume with MPs on the Disability Discrimination Act? And after that became law, the enforcement body, which was the Disability Rights Commission, and I became a commissioner of that. But it was all within disability I decided that I actually need to get out and get some different experience. So I applied for a job as the founding chair of the Social Care Institute for Excellence. And that was my first political appointment. I was appointed by the then Minister for Social Care, Jackie Smith. And I think she was she had the guts to take on somebody who wasn't only a bit of a rebel, but also visually not very, very severely disabled, which which I do. I mean, I can only move my head. And for some, that makes them think that I am completely incapable of working. But I'm not, because actually all you need is a brain. So, yeah, she took me on, and the Institute was very successful. I built it, and it was one of the few NGOs to survive the bonfire of the Krangos, um, and it still exists today, and it's a very, very important body that advises the government on policy and practice in social care. And it was around that time that the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Health, Nigel Chris, he said, and I ever considered applying to be a crossbencher in the House of Lords. She said, we need people like you. And I remember laughing at him and saying, oh, God, they're never going to appoint somebody who's been an outspoken critic of the government for Duncan's years. And not only that, I was a lawbreaker. And he said, no, that's exactly who they want. And he sowed the seed. And here I am now, 13 years across venture. And... um, yeah, they haven't thrown me out yet. And do you think then that being a member has helped you achieve your goals as a campaigner? Yes, it was a tremendous education. Um, I needed to take a couple of years to make that transition from being a campaigner to parliamentarian. So in the first year, I I didn't speak that often. I just sat and learnt because I wanted to understand why it was so necessary to have all these strange rules and regulations, like speaking in the second person when you're speaking on the floor of the house, and all the, and the use of deference and terms of deference. But I began to understand that, that it really oiled the wheels of good collaboration. And, and what I found with the House of Lords, that it was so much more collegiate than what I'd experienced with lobbying MPs in the House of Commons. And, and I liked I liked the atmosphere, I liked the way that we debated, and I didn't find it a struggle to be heard. But you have to realise that, you know, I was a black and white campaigner for many years, when you rarely compromise on your goals and everything is black and white. And 
in the Lords, it's all about negotiation, trading, small points of revision that can make an enormous difference. Um, and yeah, it's you know, there's so many competing interests, both political, economic, cultural, and so forth. But I would say it's a very good way to to grow your understanding about how the world fits together. It's complicated. And so, am I achieving my goals? Well, I, I would say I'm always on a journey towards achieving my ideal goal. And yes, I've been seeing some huge gains, but there's also been huge losses. So yeah, it's a journey. You've obviously dedicated much of your life to, um, you know, trying to improve the lives of, of disabled people. But did you have any sort of particular ambitions for your time as a member? Anything you wanted to achieve specifically, you know, within the House of Lords? Oh, I want to achieve so much. That's the problem, isn't it? I guess, first and foremost, I want to see the Disability Discrimination Act fully implemented and enforced. I mean, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year for the past of that. And there is so much more to achieve to make society truly inclusive of disabled people. I mean, you only need to look at the representation of disabled people in the labour market, in Parliament, in the media, or the arts to know that there are still many barriers in our way. So, yes, I would like to see the DDA fully implemented. It's not. There are loads of, loads of parts that aren't. I mean, even our transport network isn't fully accessible. There's still many buildings that we can't get into. And people are still discriminated against on a daily basis in employment, in just in the street. So we've got a way to go there. And yeah, in addition, I'd also like to see a big investment in the care and support industry. I mean, I'm only able to do my job and live independently in the community because I have a decent state-funded care and support package. But I really have to fight to avail for it. The majority of disabled people do not have my skills and therefore I'm condemned to a life of struggle or coping. But if the state invested in disabled people with their day-to-day needs, then they will enable people like me to contribute to society rather than become passive recipient of benefits and annual care. It just makes sense to me. So that investment is crucial and we're way, way We've got a long way to go there. But it was recently the 25th anniversary of the Disability Discrimination Act and the fact that there are still barriers to disabled people today. How, how do you think the House of Lords fares on that? Do you think the House could do more? Well, it's an old building. Um, so you can imagine there are parts of it that are quite, still quite inaccessible. 
Um, and there's a lot to do. Um, I'm hoping during the refurbishment that they will concentrate on making the house as accessible as it can be. But it's so much more accessible now than when I first arrived. I mean, when I first arrived, I actually couldn't use any of the bathrooms. Well, I needed to be done very quickly. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to go to the loop all day. But I mean, I have to say that the Lord's administration has responded to my needs, uh, which are quite considerable in some areas, in terms of office accommodation and other uh, reasonable adjustments, with great enthusiasm since the very beginning. And we've worked together. But there was one battle that I had to fight to the nail, and that wasn't a battle against, you know, a lift or a door or a toilet. It was against the House of Lords Standing Order of 1707 that stated that nobody other than members, clerks and doorkeepers were allowed to cross the bar onto the chamber floor. Now, this was going to be tricky for me because the more that my disability progresses, the more that I was going to require an assistant to be with me at all times. So I popped it onto the procedures committee to say, right, Tom, I'm sure you're okay about me bringing an assistant into the chamber with me because I'm going to need somebody to help me give my speeches when I run out of air or help me with my notes and paperwork because I can only move my head. And they said, oh, no. We can't do that. That would be breaking a historical standing order of 1707. And I just thought they were joking. But no, no, they weren't. And actually, quite a number of the members of the committee said, well, if we do it for you, we're going to have to do it for everyone. And I said, no, that's not the idea of a reasonable adjustment. You make it for the individual so that they can participate equally with other members. Anyway, it took me two years. Can you imagine? And it had to go to the same committee three times. But in the end, I was able to uh, do a little bit of internal lobbying with various people. And in the end, they saw absolute sense that this was just about equality. It wasn't about, you know, changing the, the procedures or the historical precedent. You know, we have to move on from those days. So that was quite, that was quite funny. And that made the headlines. And I, I just feel that, well, by doing that, you know, we can't go backwards. This is the way. So, yeah, I just, that was a, that was a great moment for me. It made the national newspapers. And, you know, the uh, Pandora's box is open now. So I do believe that anything can be achieved.
I remember that moment myself when you uh, first made use of that um, new facility. I think it was sort of about eight years ago now. And it goes to show how the house can change and how things, what big changes at the time, become very normal to us the now. Truth um, is, you, the truth is that I wouldn't be able to participate without that facility. So they would have lost so many with 11 years' experience of working with them. Somebody who I hope can offer the best knowledge and advice that there is on disability. So it would be such a loss. It wouldn't. There was nothing to gain by sticking by 1707 standing orders. You know, times move on. You mentioned that as a particular sort of high point, I guess, from your time in the house so far. Um, have you got any other particularly memorable moments? Oh, there have been many along the way. I mean, when my portability private members bill was totally incorporated into the social care act, that was a high point. I I saw the reason for my being there. Um, and maybe just recently raising the issue of the, uh, the COVID-19 vaccination priority list. I challenged it within the Lords. I mounted a small campaign out in out in the community. And hey, yesterday, or was it the day before, the prioritization list has changed and those who are clinically at great risk from COVID-19 have now been prioritized up the list for a vaccination. So um, I'm not saying that I single-handedly did this, but because of my network amongst disabled people in the community, because of my understanding of health and social care, I was able to bring my knowledge to the table. And I think this helped ministers to to relook at something else and change it. And that's what we're all about. I mean, that is the joy in the House of Lords. We're not there to be political. We are there to revise at legislation and to scrutinise it and to give our best experience and knowledge to bring it to the table. What probably depresses me is when people say that the House of Lords is an unelected chamber and, you know, shouldn't, we shouldn't be there because we're not elected. Um, well, I, for instance, could never, ever have become an elected member of parliament. I haven't got the physical wherewithal or capability to do what needs to be done to become elected. So you, you wouldn't have me. You probably wouldn't have many of the, the lawyers, the clinicians, some of the people who have been working like Benny out there behind the scenes day to day on their area of expertise. It's a tricky one. I think there's a lot to be reformed. My God, I would love to see the house reformed in many ways. But I wouldn't like to see it fully elected because that will just put yes another barrier in the way of disabled people participating. Because if you look in the House of Commons, how many disabled people are there? There's not that many, I can tell you. Some may have hidden disabilities, but 
we are not represented in the way that we should be. And that is because it's just so difficult to become elected, not just physically, and the physical stamina for that, but because of all the barriers that still exist in society that make travel difficult, that make just getting around the environment difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult route. To, so there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do to make the Westminster bubble a fully inclusive place. But, you know, we're there doing bit by bit. Well, thank you, Jane, Baroness Campbell-Surberton, for sharing your inspiring story with us today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. Well, it's been lovely to be thinking to you too. And that's it for this episode of the House of Lords podcast. We'll be back next month with more from the House of Lords. And if there's something you'd love us to explore, you can tell us by tweeting at UK House of Lords and include the hashtag HLcast. Thank you to Baroness Campbell of Surbiton and Lord Teverson for joining us this week. If you enjoyed listening, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you.